Chapter Thirty Four of Ruth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cynthia Lyons. Ruth by Elizabeth Cleghorn Gaskell. Chapter Thirty Four. I must go and nurse Mister Bellingham. The next morning. Miss Benson would insist upon making Ruth lie down on the sofa. Ruth longed to do many things, to be much more active, but she submitted when she found that it would gratify Miss Faith if she remained as quiet as if she were really an invalid. Leonard sat by her, holding her hand. Every now and then he looked up from his book, as if to make sure that she was indeed restored to him. He had brought her down the flowers which she had given him the day of her departure, and which he had kept in water as long as they had any greenness or fragrance, and then had carefully dried and put by. She, too, smiling, had produced the one rose which she had carried away to the hospital. Never had the bond between her and her boy been drawn so firm and strong. Many visitors came this day to the quiet chapel house. First of all, Mrs. Farquhar appeared. She looked very different from the Jemima Bradshaw of three years ago. Happiness had called out beauty. The colouring of her face was lovely, and vivid as that of an autumn day. Her berry red lips scarce closed over the short white teeth for her smiles, and her large, dark eyes glowed and sparkled with daily happiness. They were softened by a mist of tears as she looked upon Ruth. "'Lie still. Don't move. You must be content to-day to be waited upon and nursed. I have just seen Miss Benson in the lobby, and had charge upon charge not to fatigue you. Oh, Ruth, how we all love you! Now we have you back again. Do you know—' I taught Rosa to say her prayers as soon as ever you were gone to that horrid place, just on purpose that her little innocent lips might pray for you. I wish you could hear her say it. Please, dear God, keep Ruth safe. Oh, Leonard, are not you proud of your mother? Leonard said yes, rather shortly, as if he were annoyed that anyone else should know, or even have a right to imagine how proud he was. Jemima went on. Now, Ruth, I have got a plan for you. Walter and I have partly made it, and partly it's papa's doing. Yes, dear, papa has been quite anxious to show his respect for you. We all want you to go to the dear Eagle's Crag for this next month, and get strong, and have some change in that fine air at Abermouth. I am going to take little Rosa there. Papa has lent it to us, and the weather is often very beautiful in November. Thank you very much. It is very tempting, for I have been almost longing for some such change. I cannot tell all at once whether I can go, but I will see about it, if you will let me leave it open a little while. Oh, as long as you like, so that you will but go at last— and master leonard you are to come too now i know i have you on my side ruth thought of the place 
her only reluctance arose from the remembrance of that one interview on the sands that walk she could never go again but how much remained how much that would be a charming balm and refreshment to her what happy evenings we shall have together do you know i think mary and elizabeth may perhaps come a bright gleam of sunshine came into the room look how bright and propitious for our plans dear ruth it seems like an omen for the future almost while she spoke miss benson entered bringing with her mr gray the rector of eccleston he was an elderly man short and stoutly built with something very formal in his manner but any one might feel sure of his steady benevolence who noticed the expression of his face and especially of the kindly black eyes that gleamed beneath his grey and shaggy eyebrows ruth had seen him at the hospital once or twice and mrs farquhar had met him pretty frequently in general society go and tell your uncle said miss benson to leonard stop my boy i have just met mr benson in the street and my errand now is to your mother i should like you to remain and hear what it is and i am sure that my business will give these ladies bowing to miss benson and jemima so much pleasure that i need not apologize for entering upon it in their presence he pulled out his double eyeglass saying with a grave smile you ran away from us yesterday so quietly and cunningly mrs denby that you were perhaps not aware that the board was sitting at that very time and trying to form a vote sufficiently expressive of our gratitude to you as chairman they requested me to present you with this letter which i shall have the pleasure of reading with all due emphasis he read aloud a formal letter from the secretary to the infirmary conveying a vote of thanks to ruth the good rector did not spare her one word from date of signature and then folding the letter up he gave it to leonard saying there sir when you are an old man you may read that testimony to your mother's noble conduct with pride and pleasure for indeed continued he turning to jemima no words can express the relief it was to us i speak of the gentleman composing the board of the infirmary when mrs denby came forward the panic was at its height and the alarm of course aggravated the disorder the poor creatures died rapidly there was hardly time to remove the dead bodies before others were brought in to occupy the beds so little help was to be procured on account of the universal terror and the morning when mrs denby offered us her services we seemed at the very worst i shall never forget the sensation of relief in my mind when she told us what she proposed to do but we thought it right to warn her to the full extent nay madam said he catching a glimpse of ruth's changing colour i will spare you any more praises i will only say if i can be a friend to you or a friend to your child you may command my poor powers to the utmost he got up and bowing formally he took his leave jemima came and kissed ruth leonard went upstairs to put the precious letter away miss benson sat crying heartily in a corner of the room 
Ruth went to her and threw her arms round her neck and said, I could not tell him just then. I durst not speak for fear of breaking down. But if I have done right, it was all owing to you and Mr. Benson. Oh, I wish I had said how the thought first came into my head from seeing the things Mr. Benson had done so quietly ever since the fever first came amongst us. I could not speak, and it seemed as if I was taking those praises to myself, when all the time I was feeling how little I deserved them, how it was all owing to you. "'Under God, Ruth,' said Miss Benson, speaking through her tears, "'oh, think there is nothing humbles one so much as undue praise.' While he was reading that letter, I could not help feeling how many things I have done wrong. Could he know of, of what I have been?' asked she, dropping her voice very low. "'Yes,' said Jemima. "'He knew. Everybody in Eccleston did know. But the remembrance of those days is swept away. Miss Benson,' she continued, for she was anxious to turn the subject, "'you must be on my side, and persuade Ruth to come to Abermouth for a few weeks. I want her and Leonard both to come.' I'm afraid my brother will think that Leonard is missing his lessons sadly. Just of late we could not wonder that the poor child's heart was so full, but he must make haste, and get on all the more for his idleness. Miss Benson piqued herself on being a disciplinarian. Oh, as for lessons, Walter is so very anxious that you should give way to his superior wisdom, Ruth, and let Leonard go to school. He will send him to any school you fix upon, according to the mode of life you plan for him. I have no plan, said Ruth. I have no means of planning. All I can do is try and make him ready for anything. Well, said Jemima, we must talk it over at Abermouth, for I am sure you won't refuse to come, dearest, dearest Ruth. Think of the quiet, sunny days and the still evenings that we shall have together, with little Rosa to tumble about among the fallen leaves, and there's Leonard to have his first sight of the sea. I do think of it, said Ruth, smiling at the happy picture Jemima drew, and both smiling at the hopeful prospect before them, they parted, never to meet again in life. No sooner had Mrs. Farquhar gone than Sally burst in. Oh! dear, dear, said she, looking around her. If I had but known that the rector was coming to call, I'd have put on the best covers and the Sunday tablecloth. You're well enough, continued she, surveying Ruth from head to foot. You're always trim and dainty in your gowns, though I reckon they cost but tuppence a yard, and you've got a face to set em off. But as for you, as she turned to Miss Benson, I think you might had something better on than that old stuff, if it had only been to do credit to a parishioner like me, whom he has known ever since my father was his clerk. You forget, Sally. I had been making jelly all the morning. How could I tell it was Mr. Gray when there was a knock at the door? Miss Benson replied. You might have letting me do the jelly, I's a warrant I could have pleased Ruth as well as you. If I had but known he was coming, I'd ha' slipped round the corner and bought ye a neck-ribbon or something to lighten ye up. 
i's loath he should think i'm livin with dissenters that don't know how to keep themselves trig and smart never mind sally he never thought of me what he came for was to see ruth and as you say she's always neat and dainty well i reckon it cannot be helped now but if i buy ye a ribbon will you promise to wear it when church folks come for i cannot abide the way they have of scoffing at the dissenters about their dress very well we'll make that bargain said miss benson and now ruth i'll go and fetch you a cup of warm jelly ah indeed aunt faith said ruth i am very sorry to balk you but if you're going to treat me as an invalid i'm afraid i shall rebel but when she found that aunt faith's heart was set upon it she submitted very graciously only dimpling up a little as she found that she must consent to lie on the sofa and be fed when in truth she felt full of health with a luxurious sensation of languor stealing over her now and then just enough to make it very pleasant to think of the salt breezes and the sea beauty which awaited her at abermouth mr davis called in the afternoon and his visit was also to ruth mr and miss benson were sitting with her in the parlour and watching her with contented love as she employed herself in household sewing and hopefully spoke about the abermouth plan well so you had our worthy rector here to-day i am come on something of the same kind of errand only i shall spare you the reading of my letter which i'll answer for it he did not please to take notice said he putting down a sealed letter that i have delivered you a vote of thanks from my medical brothers and open and read it at your leisure only not just now for i want to have a little talk with you on my own behoof i want to ask you a favour mrs denby a favour exclaimed ruth what can i do for you i think i may say i will do it without hearing what it is then you're a very imprudent woman replied he however i'll take you at your word i want you to give me your boy leonard ay there it is you see mr benson one minute she's as ready as can be and the next she looks at me as if i were an ogre perhaps we don't understand what you mean said mr benson the thing is this you know i've no children and i can't say i've ever fretted over it much but my wife has and whether it is that she has infected me or that i grieve over my good practice going to a stranger when i ought to have had a son to take it after me i don't know but of late i've got to look with covetous eyes on all healthy boys and at last i've settled down my wishes on this leonard of yours mrs denby ruth could not speak for even yet she did not understand what he meant he went on now how old is the lad he asked ruth but miss benson replied he'll be twelve next february humph only twelve he's tall and old-looking for his age you look young enough it is true he said this last sentence as if to himself but seeing ruth crimson up he abruptly changed his tone twelve is he well i take him from now i don't mean that i really take him away from you said he softening all at once and becoming grave and considerate his being your son the son 
of one whom I have seen, as I have seen you, Mrs. Denby, out and out the best nurse I ever met with, Miss Benson, and good nurses are things we doctors know how to value. This, being your son, is his great recommendation to me, not but what the lad himself is a noble boy. I shall be glad to leave him with you as long and as much as we can. He could not be tied to your apron strings all his life, you know. Only I provide for his education, subject to your consent and good pleasure, and he is bound apprentice to me. I, his guardian, bind him to myself, the first surgeon in Eccleston, be the other who he may, and in process of time he becomes partner, and some day or other succeeds me. Now, Mrs. Denby, what have you got to say against this plan? My wife is just as full of it as me. Come, begin with your objections. You're not a woman if you have not a whole bag full of them ready to turn out against any reasonable proposal. I don't know, faltered Ruth. It is so sudden. It is very, very kind of you, Mr. Davis, said Miss Benson, a little scandalized at Ruth's non-expression of gratitude. Pooh, pooh, I'll answer for it in the long run. I am taking good care of my own interests. Come, Mrs. Denby, is it a bargain? Now Mr. Benson spoke. Mr. Davis, it is rather sudden, as she says. As far as I can see, it is the best as well as the kindest proposal that could have been made, but I think we must give her a little time to think about it. Well, twenty-four hours, will that do? Ruth lifted her head. Mr. Davis, I am not ungrateful because I can't thank you. She was crying while she spoke. Let me have a fortnight to consider about it. In a fortnight I will make up my mind. Oh, how good you are, all are. Very well. Then this day fortnight, Thursday the 28th, you will let me know your decision. Mind, if it's against me, I shan't consider it a decision, for I'm determined to carry my point. I'm not going to make Mrs. Denby blush, Mr. Benson, by telling you, in her presence, of all that I have observed about her these last three weeks, that has made me sure of the good qualities I shall find in this boy of hers. I was watching her when she little thought of it. Do you remember that night when Hector O'Brien was so furiously delirious, Mrs. Denby? Ruth went very white at the remembrance. Why now, look there, how pale she is at the very thought of it. And yet, I assure you, she was the one to go up and take the piece of glass from him which he had broken out of the window for the sole purpose of cutting his throat, or the throat of anyone else, for that matter. I wish we had some others as brave as she is. I thought the great panic was passed away, said Mr. Benson. Ay, the general feeling of alarm is much weaker, but here and there, there are as great fools as ever. Why, when I leave here, I am going to see our precious member, Mr. Dunn. Mr. Dunn? said Ruth. Mr. Dunn, who lies ill at the Queen's, came last week with the intention of canvassing, but was too much alarmed by what he heard of the fever to set to work, and in spite of all his precautions he has taken it, and you should see the terror they are in at the hotel, landlord, landlady, waiters, servants, all. There's not a creature who will go near him if they can help it, and there's only his groom, 
a lad he saved from drowning, I'm told, to do anything for him. I must get him a proper nurse, somehow or somewhere, for all my being a Cranworth man. Ah, Mr. Benson, you don't know the temptations we medical men have. Think, if I allowed your member to die now, as he might very well, if he had no nurse, how famously Mr. Cranworth would walk over the course. Where's Mrs. Denby gone to? I hope I've not frightened her away by reminding her of Hector O'Brien and that awful night when I do assure you she behaved like a heroine. As Mr. Benson was showing Mr. Davis out, Ruth opened the study door and said in a very calm, low voice, Mr. Benson, will you allow me to speak to Mr. Davis alone? Mr. Benson immediately consented, thinking that, in all probability, she wished to ask some further questions about Leonard. But, as Mr. Davis came into the room and shut the door, he was struck by her pale, stern face of determination, and awaited her speaking first. "'Mr. Davis, I must go and nurse Mr. Bellingham,' said she at last, clenching her hands tight together, but no other part of her body moving from its intense stillness. "'Mr. Bellingham?' asked he, astonished at the name. "'Mr. Dunn, I mean,' she said hurriedly. His name was Bellingham. "'Oh, I remember hearing he had changed his name for some property. But you must not think of any more such work just now. You are not fit for it. You are looking as white as ashes.' "'I must go,' she repeated. "'Nonsense! Here's a man who can pay for the care of the first hospital nurses in London, and I doubt if his life is worth the risk of one of theirs even, much more of yours. We have no right to weigh human lives against each other. No, I know we have not, but it's a way we doctors are apt to get into, and at any rate it's ridiculous of you to think of such a thing. Just listen to reason. I can't. I can't, cried she, with a sharp pain in her voice. You must let me go, dear Mr. Davis, said she, now speaking with soft entreaty. No, said he, shaking his head authoritatively, I'll do no such thing. Listen, said she, dropping her voice, and going all over the deepest scarlet. He is Leonard's father. Now you will let me go. Mr. Davis was indeed staggered by what she said, and for a moment he did not speak. So she went on. You will not tell. You must not tell. No one knows, not even Mr. Benson, who it was. And now it might do him so much harm to have it known. You will not tell. No, I will not tell, replied he. But, Mrs. Denby, you must answer me this one question, which I ask you in all true respect, but which I must ask in order to guide both myself and you aright. Of course, I knew Leonard was illegitimate. In fact, I will give you the secret for secret. It was being so myself that first made me sympathize with him and desire to adopt him. I knew that much of your history. But tell me, do you now care for this man? Answer me truly. Do you love him? For a moment or two 
She did not speak. Her head was bent down. Then she raised it up and looked with clear and honest eyes into his face. I have been thinking, but I do not know, I cannot tell, I don't think I should love him, if he were well and happy. But you said he was ill, and alone. How can I help caring for him? How can I help caring for him? repeated she, covering her face with her hands, and the quick hot tears stealing through her fingers. He is Leonard's father, continued she, looking up at Mr. Davis suddenly. He need not know, he shall not, that I have ever been near him. If he is like the others, he must be delirious. I will leave him before he comes to himself. But now let me go, I must go. I wish my tongue had been bitten out before I had named him to you. He would do well enough without you, and, I dare say, if he recognizes you, he will only be annoyed. It is very likely, said Ruth heavily. Annoyed? Why, he may curse you for your unasked-for care for him. I have heard my poor mother, and she was as pretty and delicate a creature as you are, cursed for showing tenderness when it was not wanted. Now, be persuaded by an old man like me, who has seen enough of life to make his heart ache. Leave this fine gentleman to his fate. I promise you to get him as good a nurse as can be had for money. No, said Ruth, with dull persistency, as if she had not attended to his dissuasions. I must go. I will leave him before he recognizes me. Why, then, said the old surgeon, if you are so bent upon it, I suppose I must let you. It is but what my mother would have done. Poor heartbroken thing. However, come along and let us make the best of it. It saves me a deal of trouble, I know, for if I have you for a right hand, I need not worry myself continually with wondering how he is taken care of. Go get your bonnet, you tender-hearted fool of a woman. Let us get you out of the house without any more scenes or explanations. I'll make all straight with the Bensons. You will not tell my secret, Mr. Davis, she said abruptly. No, not I. Does the woman think I had never to keep a secret of the kind before? I only hope he'll lose his election and never come near the place again. After all— continued he, sighing. I suppose it is but human nature. He began recalling the circumstances of his own early life and dreamily picturing scenes in the grey dying embers of the fire, and he was almost startled when she stood before him, ready equipped, grave, pale, and quiet. Come along, said he, if you're to do any good at all, it must be in these next three days. After that, I'll insure his life for this bout, and mind, I shall send you home then, for he might know you, and I'll have no excitement to throw him back again, and no sobbing and crying from you. But now every moment your care is precious to him. I shall tell my own story to the Bensons as soon as I have installed you. Mr. Dunn lay in the best room of the Queen's Hotel, no one with him but his faithful ignorant servant, who was as much afraid of the fever as any one else could be, but who, nevertheless, would not leave his master, his master who had saved his life as a child, 
and afterwards put him in the stables at Bellingham Hall, where he learnt all that he knew. He stood in a farther corner of the room, watching his delirious master with affrighted eyes, not daring to come near him, nor yet willing to leave him. Oh, if that doctor would but come! He'll kill himself or me, and them stupid servants won't stir a step over the threshold. How shall I get over the night? Blessings on him! Here's the old doctor back again. I hear him creaking and scolding up the stairs. The door opened, and Mr. Davis entered, followed by Ruth. Here's the nurse, my good man, such a nurse as there is not in the three counties. Now, all you'll have to do is mind what she says. Oh, sir, he's mortal bad. Won't you stay with us through the night, sir? Look here, whispered Mr. Davis to the man. See how she knows how to manage him, why I could not do it better myself. She had gone up to the wild, raging figure, and with soft authority had made him lie down, and then, placing a basin of cold water by the bedside, she had dipped it in her pretty hands and was laying their cool dampness on his hot brow, speaking in a low, soothing voice all the time, in a way that acted like a charm in hushing his mad talk. "'But I will stay,' said the doctor, after he had examined his patient, as much on her account as his, and partly to quieten the fears of this poor, faithful fellow. End of chapter 34